0: Germany's German, foi- German beleaguered. defense minister has temporarily dropped his PhD title. perle der deutschen Industrie. Glühweinstände aufgebaut werden, wenn washstämmers are made. The
1: Hey, this is Ted.
0: Hi, it's Michelle. Welcome back to Spaßbremse.
1: And today we have an episode that we're very excited for, talking about Angela Merkel herself. This is obviously a super relevant topic for the upcoming election, as we're only a few weeks out of the contest to replace her as chancellor. And the topic also ties together several of our previous episodes, because it's impossible to understand her rise and tenure as chancellor without understanding the process of German reunification and the sphere reforms, which directly preceded her. So definitely listen to those episodes if you haven't already. And I should also point out that there's like a ton to say about Merkel. Um, We want to do a multi-part deep dive about her another time. So this is going to be just a good primer to help you understand the September 26 election and her legacy going into it. You know, if you're a, a euro crisis enthusiast or very interested in nuclear power, we're not going to do justice to all those topics. But we're going to try to give a nice broad context of of her life and tenure as a politician.
0: Yeah, we're kind of going to take the angle of Merkel myth versus reality. You hear a lot about how great she is in both German and U.S. press. But how accurate is that?
1: Right. So Germans love her. She has, think about, was it 70% approval ratings, which is like really wild in a democracy. Uh, The Anglophone media loves her. She's hailed as this incredible world leader. She has 14 national medals, excluding the one she got in Germany. um, Over, I think the last count was 17 honorary doctorates from all over the world. I think that's gone up in the last couple of years, including U.S. universities, like prestigious ones like Harvard, or Johns Hopkins. There's all this fawning over her, treating her as this, this amazing, amazing person, but her actual record terms of, say, feeding Greece to the wolves, uh, fairly conservative social record overall, declining quality of life in Germany, rising inequality, an increase in geopolitical instability is pretty much by all objective accounts quite poor. Um, and you know we're saying this from a left perspective But even if you're like a super pro-EU centrist type of person, you shouldn't really like the lack of direction that she's provided in Europe. Um, She's kind of failed even on her own terms as the supposed like ultimate European. So what's the deal here?
0: She's considered a kind of moderate and pragmatist, a non-ideological crisis manager. But is that true? I mean, her record on economics is particularly radical.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, she's like... Baked in austerity in Germany through the Schuldenbremse, the the debt break in particular, and the Schwarzenaul under when when Schäuble was was finance minister, um, Schuldenbremse is actually part of the constitution. There's a constitutionally mandated break uh, on how much debt Germany can take on. So it's like, and that's pretty much unchangeable at this point. Um, it's just that the coalition that produced that was enough to get it as a constitutional matter. And now there's not really any viable coalition to undo that. And so this is like long term stuff of the, the very nature of German society, politics and economics that that she's codified. And she really managed to apply the same logic to Europe as a whole in the wake of the euro crisis, having these very strict limits on borrowing. And during this crisis, you know, crushing a lot of these poorer states, making them implement austerity, and like we said, still she's supposed to be a moderator and this great leader. I mentioned the, the honorary doctorate she got at Harvard in 2019. This was this cause of like big big fanfare, you know, because Trump was in there. Um, you know, the Western world is in decline, democracy, the crisis of democracy, populists, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So she's like this great western leader arriving for this prestigious title she's getting from harvard and so the harvard gazette publishes this piece it starts out quote as national populist forces again threaten to overtake much of europe and undermine relations between the us and the continent harvard again welcomes a pivotal democratic figure a woman widely regarded as the most respected leader in the world. German Chancellor Angela Merkel. And then they have this series of of quotes um, from different sort of diplomats and and journalists and so on. And we'll read a couple just because it gives you an idea of this fawning coverage about her that we want to sort of complicate and add a little nuance to.
0: Exactly. So here we have Wendy Sherman of the Harvard Kennedy School, earlier a part of the Clinton State Department saying, quote, she is extraordinary. She knows who she is. She does not try to be anything other. She is an authentic leader, which is critical. She has a set of strong values and she understands Germany's history exceedingly well, in part because she comes from East Germany,
1: end quote. Yeah, and this, this East Germany thing will pop up over and over as it's always alluded to as providing her with this sort of like magical perspective, but it's never really explicitly stated what that is or why that matters. We'll get back to that. Continuing on here with the quotes, uh, Nicholas Burns, who's a longtime diplomat, was recently disappointed as ambassador to China by Biden. Quote, she's now the leader of the West. She's the one Western leader who's never flinched. I think she will arrive at Harvard with many, many people on both sides of the Atlantic, seeing her as a figure of hope.
0: Then we have Annette Schavan, who is the German ambassador to the Holy See, who is a um, CDU member and Merkel confidant, saying, quote, while populists were maneuvering to use the issue to their advantage, she viewed it as the hour of truth for a Christian democracy. How Europe treated refugees was a testament to how it treats human beings end quote and we'll get into this a little later um about how merkel actually treated refugees (laughs) during the crisis um in 2015 exactly it's just a myth like this is just
1: yeah she did obviously let in all these people a a lie. (laughs) but but in terms of like she's saying populists are using The issue of refugees to their advantage, but she stood up and like had this great principled stand. But that doesn't really hold up if you look at one, how they treated refugees right after this big, this big influx that, you know, to her credit, she did allow. But especially now in Afghanistan um, with with potential refugees from there and the the modern European border policies are uh, anything but forgiving. Last one here from Zygmunt Gabriel, who was a foreign minister as part of the SPD, actually her should be rival party, quote, without her, it would not have been possible to stop the war at a certain level in the east of Ukraine. It was her outstanding role to convince the heads of state and government to participate at the Paris Climate Summit in 2015. And so, like, one, like, she really early pledged her support for Ukraine and Georgia joining NATO, which inflamed these tensions in the first place, and stopping the war at a certain level is not exactly the same as peace. Second, convening at the Paris Climate Summit to make these goals, which, one, a lot of people say are insufficient. Two, Germany is not even on track to meet them because of Merkel's decision. So why can you get any credit for convening a summit, which you then disobey the guidelines that have come out of it. It just, it just doesn't hold up.
0: Right. I mean, so you see the types of things people say about her, and we've kind of speckled in a bit of the reality because we want to add just more nuance to that picture and hopefully give people an overview.
1: Yeah, and so that leads us to these really three main questions of the episode that we want to answer. One, about her biography. How did you know the preacher's daughter from communist East Germany How did she evolve to become one of the most successful and influential right-wing politicians in recent history? Two, how did the public perception and media narrative around her evolve to be so generous, despite her, in our opinion, largely disastrous tenure? And last, how should we think of her 16 years in power and what does that mean for the future of German politics? And so we'll start with this biography Michelle, do you want to inform us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I can give you a little background about Merkel. Um, she was born on July 17th, 1954 in Hamburg as Angela Kastner. Her family actually moved to East Germany after her father took a job as a Lutheran pastor and they lived in Palabak that's in the state of Brandenburg. She was a member of the Communist Youth Organization, um, FDJ, that's the Freie Deutsche Jugend, the Free German Youth. Many pundits say this membership and her like participation in this youth club basically is an indication of her general opportunism and her capacity to adapt and fit in. Angela speaks fluent Russian. Every single article written about her biography mentions what a fantastic student she was. She completes her PhD in quantum chemistry in 1986. And then crucially, Merkel enters politics after the peaceful revolution and not before. So she was never a member of any of those opposition groups in the DDR that we talked about, and she definitely wasn't out protesting leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall.
1: Yeah, she she kind of famously uh, sort of, you know, wasn't at the at the forefront of when the wall was coming down was was hanging out at the sauna when the announcement that people could travel freely was issued. Kind of poked around, exactly. saw that it was open and then uh, went went back to the lab on the night of November 9th because she had to uh, sorry, she went back and went to bed because she had to get to the lab early in the morning the next day. So these are these are always things that pop up in these narratives about her. So not yeah. You know, not not taking risks, not not really like at the, at the forefront of the opposition to the DDR to, to go on here in terms of how she evolved to be a politician from from being a scientist. She said, quote, immediately after the wall fell, three things became clear to me. One, I wanted to get into Parliament. Two, I wanted German unification to happen quickly. And three, I wanted a market economy. So that's what she's she's looking at and she entered politics quite quickly afterwards. And so the CDU and Democratic Awakening, which was an East German movement led by a preacher. Um, Merkel was a press agent for Democratic Awakening. Those two merged ahead of the 1990 election in East Germany. Um, So then Merkel became part of the CDU. It's tough to say at this point how much she was motivated by right wing ideology. But the CDU's main promise was fast reunification. As we talked about in the episode, the first one about reunification, this 1990 election, turned into a question of how quickly do we we reunify? And the CDU said quickly, and people at the time really wanted that. So the CDU appealed to her. Initially, this was a bit of an odd fit for Merkel as the CDU, particularly then, um, still today in many ways, was very patriarchal, hierarchical, based largely in the south of Germany. But she eventually sort of mastered these tenets of CDU ideology, free markets, Atlanticism, in some elements, social conservatism, in order to succeed. And especially on economics, it's pretty clear that she drank the Kool-Aid.
0: Right, I mean, she was previously Kohl's Métien, and then went for the throat after he was implicated in this campaign finance scandal. Um, Merkel actually writes an op-ed, in an op-ed, quote, the party must learn to walk now and dare to engage in future battles with its political opponents without its old war horse, as Kohl has often enjoyed calling himself. We who now have responsibility for the party, and not so much Helmut Kohl, will decide how to approach the new era. So really positioning herself as
1: Exactly. And this was when she was she was in government after a kind of rise through the coal administration and kind of Cole took her under his wings. And then as soon as he had some kind of weakness, she totally goes for the jugular, gets him. Uh, he ends up getting toppled. And she then, uh, after some back and forth, ends up winning the party leadership. That brings us to the 2005 CDU convention in Leipzig. Recall, 2005 is after Schroeder has done his controversial Hartz Sphere reforms gutting German welfare. And there were um, some no-confidence votes, issues with various elections, um, like in NRV. And so this prompted early elections in 2005. And this is now quoting from a book called Angela Merkel, A Chancellorship Forged in Crisis from Tony Zucker and Alan Crawford. And this, this passage here gives some context about this very, very controversial and right-wing economically program that they offered at the 2005 convention in Leipzig. And I think it really gives a great glimpse into what Merkel really thinks about economics. So quoting now, she went on to advocate that high schools are allowed to select their pupils and performance related pay for teachers. She urged a greater focus on financial services to add to Germany's manufacturing export industries, a reform of social security and healthcare to place more emphasis on performance, a reduction of pensions and a pensions age corridor of 63 to 67. The income tax system must be rebuilt to address the bad joke of a redistribution dogma. Wage tariffs must allow for longer hours or lower pay to attract inward investment. And protection from dismissal must be made more flexible. And employers allowed to undercut wages to promote Germany as a leader in services. The state must, quote, retreat to allow more space and individual responsibility for people. This sounds basically just like a libertarian wish list, right? Um, And this is in the wake of Schroeder already cutting a lot of worker protections and social welfare. And so she wants to really continue this process and accelerate it. She even proposed a flat tax of 25%. No progressive tax anymore. Like, you know, the highest, I think, was about 42% at the time. And so just 25% across the board. Rich pay the same as poor. Pretty, pretty wild stuff here. And the thing is, is that this almost failed. Polls between the CDU and SPD had the CDU way up. Um, Schroeder was running again at this time against Merkel. Um, The CDU was up by like 19, 20 points. This whittled down to about eight in the polls right before. And it came down. It actually looked like a tie on election night. Uh, Short actually declared victory. um, And it turned out that was wrong. The CDU actually had more votes. But this was way closer than she expected. Everyone was really, really shocked. What this showed, that Germans aren't ready for like a Thatcher figure, especially in the wake of the Agenda 2010 reforms. And so it. It looks like this really scared Merkel, not away from the ideology of the right, but at least from its rapid implementation. So, you know, she learned, well, what we have to do is play the long game. You know, Germany didn't really have a Thatcher equivalent. At the time, there was, you know, Thatcher and Reagan really doing this radical conservatism stuff. Cole kind of wanted to do some of that, really never got around to it. And so she learned that after 2005, like I said, she couldn't be the German Thatcher. But what she could be, to draw a little later comparison, she could be the German Obama. Obama even said he would probably vote for her if he was a German, which is a funny thing for like a supposedly progressive Democrat to say. And what I mean by that comparison is that she could cement neoliberalism through times of crisis, deny alternatives but offer small wins to your opponents to steal their ability to criticize you. In a less media polarized country than like the US, UK, like Germany, this worked really well. For example, by giving a little extra for pensions or adding a minimum wage, and this deflated the SPD and the Greens. And what does this do? Well, just like the Obama comparison, you can continue the upward redistribution of wealth with minimal disruption by placating other groups a little bit about her political history here through the the euro crisis she worked to recapitalize banks on a national level but not establish a broader eu fiscal capacity and you know she she cited this uh, this Goethe quote um, ein jeder kehrt seiner tur und rein ist jedes stadtquartier everyone should sweep in front of his door and then every city quarter will be clean i.e. mind your own business, clean up your own shit. It's not our job to help you out. And this will get into the rhetoric too. She has this way of saying very factual and nice sounding things that really belie this deep right ideology. And that's a a good example right there. Also sort of trying to make it poetic. With the sort of second phase of the euro crisis with Greece um, in the negotiations where it was like, what are they going to write down some debt? What are the what are the conditions on Greece going to be? This is almost like an opening scene of Godfather Two moment. Like my offer is nothing. They get the European Stability Mechanism, which introduces punishing austerity. Wages in Greece go down by about half. Pensions are cut. You know, just just across the board devastation. I think people know about this. Um, no write down of the debt, and this works to make an example of them why does she do this you know is it is it pragmatism is it ideology is it backing german interest groups it's pretty tough to parse but by making an example of greece it threatens other countries many of whom operate within the german supply chain knowing that they have to do reform of course just cutting things making working conditions worse the german companies that then get intermediate products from these other eu countries then have to pay less for unemployment pay less for pensions can make people work more and so by implementing austerity it helps german businesses and it deflects some of the worst of it away from germany there's some ideology here but i don't think that's entirely it i think she does believe that people you know need to be independent and sort of these these sort of traditional right wing right wing things but it's not it's not this overall message of, you know, orto liberalism or these ingrained German ideas. It's really a way to punish the working class and help German capital in this very right-wing way that she outlined quite well in 2005.
0: I also think it's important to look at some of her environmental policies. In terms of nuclear energy, we see a big reversal for Merkel who had previously deemed it, quote, absurd to shut down technologically safe nuclear power plants that don't emit carbon dioxide. And, you know, Schroeder had planned to phase out nuclear power by 2022. The black-yellow government then delayed this with massive opposition by the left. Go listen to our climate episode three, I believe, for more about this kind of bizarre political alignment in... 2011, after the disaster in Fukushima, Merkel reverses course, announcing closure of nuclear power plants in Germany by 2022. So now only a handful of plants remain operational, and nuclear power production has been halved from about 20% in 2011 to 10% in 2017, further declining since then, like I said.
1: Yeah. And this is a total disaster for climate goals to reduce carbon emissions, but it's kind of throwing this bone to to the anti-nuclear left. And, you know, in this this way, I'm talking about that that diffuses some of the energy from a party like the Greens and gets rid of the differentiation between the two to prolong her time in power. And allow the CDU to stay there and continue this slow dismantling of a lot of the more egalitarian aspects of Germany that that used to exist, like I said, continuing this upward redistribution of wealth and punishing, you know, quote, reforming the rest of the eurozone to make it more amenable to German capital.
0: We alluded earlier to Merkel's role in the European refugee crisis in liberal circles merkel is really revered for this moment in august of 2015 where she opens germany's borders to refugees well it was actually the border to austria right she like has a phone conversation with the austrian chancellor and says like you know let these people that were bond just bust to your border like let them in because the inner eu border was never actually closed Nonetheless, this idea that it was like Merkel herself welcoming people with open arms kind of remains. And really, you know, this was just a calculated choice to not turn people away, not risk images of violence being circulated in the press. And then, you know, the Green voters see you as the, like, beacon of the (laughs) commskultur. And this act of benevolence... Is of course solidified by her infamous declaration, via Schaffen das, which translates in English to, we will manage this, or I kind of like to think of it as, we can pull this off, because her critics on the right really like skewer her for this. They never let go of this image of Merkel as pro immigrant, and they really like siphon support from the conservative party to the far right AFD by like hammering on this image of her opening the borders and like i said in reality merkel just didn't want to refuse refugees at germany's own doorstep but then it was perfectly fine to let people drown in the mediterranean after germany worked to close down the balkan route because what merkel's große coalition groco government actually managed to do is to tighten asylum requirements, making it easier to deport asylum seekers. You know, she sure pulled it off, coming away from the refugee crisis with her reputation unscathed. Of course, critics on the left see this for what it is, just a disastrous immigration policy that caused untold suffering. This is the perfect example of Merkel's success in positioning herself as a tolerant, pragmatic leader guiding germany through crisis. I mean Ted, I think you wanted to talk a bit more about Merkel's like rhetoric in general as we get into this question of why everyone loves her.
1: Yeah, definitely. Just to just to wrap up on the immigration point though. I mean, it, again, it's like people say this was like this total act of benevolence and really out of character. I mean, I think it was I think it was actually pretty pretty savvy though. I mean, it's worth bleeding a little support to the AFD for completely neutering criticism from like the Greens or the SPD and getting the sort of urban liberal coalition on your side, which is why one of the reasons she has really substantially high approval ratings is people see her as much more progressive as she is. And again, distracting getting people to take their eye off the ball, which is that Germany is becoming so much more unequal. The quality of life is going down for about half of the people, and it's just becoming a much crueler and more inhospitable country, even for native Germans, let alone the conditions of the people she actually did let in. And so it's good that people got let in, that's nice, but the overall damage she's done and the way she's used these other issues like refugees and nuclear to distract from the broader program, I think is is quite important and the main point here. So, right. Yeah. Like, why does everyone love her so much? There's a few rhetorical strategies she uses, and I think it really cleverly employs this idea that she's like this neutral and objective scientist who's not, you know, uh, compromised by ideology, as we saw with the 2005 party platform. She's deeply ideological. She just knows the best way to enact the ideology is to seem factual and objective. For an example, she moved quite quickly to the right on immigration right after letting in a lot of refugees. And she said, quote, multicultural society has failed, urging immigrants to learn the German language and adopt German values. Quote, again, we feel tied to Christian values. Those who don't accept them don't have a place here. To me, that sounds pretty close to something you'd see on like an AFD poster. Like that's, that's not the words of a welcoming politician and leader. Again, uh, to continue this, another great Merkel term is, quote, market conforming democracy. Sounds very boring and dry can kind of parse that. She said in the longer quote, we certainly live in a democracy and are also glad about this. This is a parliamentary democracy. Therefore, the budget right is the core right of parliament. To this extent, we will find ways to shape parliamentary co-decision in such a way that is nevertheless about market conforming so that the respective signals emerge on the market. This is classic textbook miracle. Sounds very boring. Sounds kind of dry. You get lost in this parliamentary budget, right? Blah, blah, blah. But what she's saying is our democracy has to suit the rules of the market, not we bend the market to the demands of democracy. Again, deeply, deeply radical right-wing stuff, but just cloaked in this very factual sounding, very dry approach. So you sort of lose sight of the actual goal here.
0: Yeah, I mean, my eyes just kind of glazed over when you were reading that quote. It really waters down some of the evil behind it. She gets a lot of compliments for her calm demeanor as well. Like, Unlike these maybe male politicians who let their ego guide decision-making, Merkel apparently doesn't mind looking weak. Like, yeah, cool ego death. That must make it easier to keep welfare recipients in poverty. I think a lot of discussion around Merkel's legacy centers around this dissection of her leadership style, whether this calm, rational, compromising approach to politics maybe has something to do with her gender. Like sometimes it's tiptoed around, other times it's not, but it's often discussed. And I'm not going to say much more about that because I think it's biological determinism nonsense. But it does connect back to something you hear a lot when asking Germans why they like Merkel so much. I hear this kind of insistence that Merkel leading one of the most powerful EU countries is a good sign for feminism. Like, oh, isn't it great to see a woman holding the reins? You know, she's seen as more tolerant. But I don't think she's like standing up for women's liberation when she voted against same-sex marriage, for example, or back to this, like, keeping the Hatsphia recipients just down and, and, like, a complete lack of financial stability that, that doesn't benefit women.
1: Right, exactly. And just even the party she's in, I mean, like, the, the Host Seehofer's and the Friedrich Matzes of the world, like, you're leading the party that's made up of these people? Like, how how could you possibly be feminist when you're, like, Supporting the like traditional values misogyny party like it just it just doesn't check out at all.
0: Yeah. She's just carrying water for these guys. It's ridiculous.
1: Absolutely. And putting the moderate face on a radical right wing party. Again, into some of this rhetoric, um, this is from Adam Tooze's book, Crashed, and I'll quote, There is little doubt that the 2005 agenda expressed the chancellor's basic personal vision. The agenda I mentioned a few times, it can be summarized in three numbers, 7, 25, and fifty. As Merkel is fond of pointing out, Europe has seven percent of the world's population and twenty five percent of its global GDP. It is responsible for 50 percent of global social spending, End quote. Again, OK, that's kind of boring. GDP, social spending, these percentages sounds like she's just sort of relaying these facts. What's she really saying? This is unsustainable. Europe cannot afford to spend this much on social welfare. We need to cut it. Deeply right-wing stuff. But it's shrouded in this sort of scientific, you know, just stating the facts and so on approach, which is again why she's so effective. I think like Germans want to see themselves as someone like Merkel of sort of like not, I should say, as someone who Merkel presents herself not the actual Merkel. But someone who's you know rigorous and non-ideological and makes pragmatic decisions, and she's this manifestation of this desire. And that leads to her great popularity, but it hides this agenda behind all of that. Um a miracle quote I, I like a lot, you know, just to continue in this vein. Quote: freedom stands for the pleasure to be gained from performance the development of the individual, joy and diversity, the rejection of egalitarianism, individual responsibility. To get there, a course of slashed cuts and savings is indispensable." End quote. This sounds like something you'd hear from like a Tea Party Republican. Like these don't sound like the words of a moderate, quote, pragmatic, non-ideological centrist. She's also used the specter of the DDR's decline to support austerity, again, in this mysticized way that her East German roots are used to her political advantage in, in various contexts. Quoting again, through bitter experience, those of us who lived in the former DDR have developed a keen sense of the painful truth that a country cannot live beyond its means. Again. What does live beyond its means mean? It means giving welfare to people who need it, helping the poor. Oh, we need to cut that because we don't want to collapse like the DDR, like very, very insidious stuff. In a more general international sense, she often uses this language of like togetherness or multilateralism to obfuscate, saying, oh, we all need to come together and reach a compromise. And that's just a way of stalling and doing as little as possible to cede German interests within the European context. She just blocks delays, trying to keep the domestic status quo as stable as possible while exporting misery and austerity in order to do that.
0: Yeah, she's really granted victories on cultural issues in particular. Um, I'm going to quote from an interview with Oliver Nachtwey. Quote, she has also heavily liberalized the CDU's domestic policies since 2005, capturing many left liberal issues like abolishing compulsory military service, enacting a liberal family policy geared towards boosting female labor market participation, approved a gradual transition out of nuclear power, and most recently, Marriage for All. Merkel is a canvas upon which society's desires for normality and stability in a world which seems out of control are projected. That German stability rests on the externalization of socioeconomic problems, goes unseen, or is ignored by many, end quote.
1: Yeah, that that totally nails it. Like, as we said, using some of these cultural things, these, like, taking the small loss... Um, in order to continue this broader project of upward redistribution of wealth and the immiseration of much of the rest of Europe. I guess this kind of just brings in my mind like a, a comparison to the U.S. Um, you know, I think we have we have a lot of listeners there, so I hope you don't mind my continued uh, U.S. references, but I think it's pretty illustrative. And that I think the best person to compare her to is... The U.S. Chief Justice John Roberts, who's often criticized from the far right for not going hard enough and applauded by liberals to be a, quote, like uh, a supposedly moderating force. But again, he's got his eye on the ball. It's making the poor poorer and making the rich richer and protecting capital at all costs. And yeah, let gay people marry like that doesn't really matter that much if you're a real dedicated right winger on economics take the l on that disappoint some of your far-right people but you're continuing this rise in inequality and that's uh that's the real important part here and you know as we mentioned this like kind of exporting austerity to the extent that she didn't pursue a radical liberalizing agenda in germany this is the result of a pragmatic political calculation or to defer the worst of austerity upon eu neighbors She's keeping the peace at home, even as quality of life has gone down slowly. It's like, you know, Merkel's not going to she's not going to make life suck really rapidly as she first wanted to do with this proposal before she was chancellor. She just wants to sort of make everything get worse in a very slow way, chipping away at the the periphery, both of society and of Europe. You know, this is a very um Putting the frog in lukewarm water and then turning up the heat, like she tried the like throwing it in the water directly thing, and it it, it jumped out. It almost didn't work. So then she's like, "Okay, we got to do this more deliberate approach." And that's what we've had for sixteen years of just everything getting worse in a very slow, boring way.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good wrap up. A good like general summary. We can kind of move into evaluating her and her legacy. I think you'll have seen a lot of the media doing these kind of analyses in the past couple months. I'm sure we'll see even more in the next month leading up to the election, but really kind of reflecting back on her time in office. I want to bring it back to the climate, because Merkel does have this reputation as the Klimakanzlerin, the climate chancellor. It does come from these well-known pictures from 2007 with Merkel in a red parka, standing in front of glaciers. She's on this visit to Greenland. And it's so fitting, right? Like the exacting scientist here to save us all. She understands the severity of the climate crisis in a way other politicians cannot. People love to say, Ted mentioned this, how instrumental she was in getting the Paris Climate Agreement signed, and yet, Germany hasn't exited coal. The new timeline for that has been pushed back to 2038. And they're shutting down their nuclear power capacity. Like, because of this strict austerity and budget discipline, the government literally cannot invest in green technology. And you kind of fast forward to now to this moment in 2021, in reaction to the massive flooding, Merkel is out there in front of disaster zone in western germany saying oh well germany just needs better climate policy i mean that's pathetic you had 16 years in office like it's just not good enough
1: yeah this is the coolest thing that politicians have been doing i think you've seen this from like obama and gavin newsom in california like a bunch of people like trying to raise awareness about the climate issue it's like do something and and she didn't do it and it's like people are happy with politicians to talk about climate and just say, oh, this is this is something that's real. We need to take it seriously. And don't ever go the next step and say, well, are they actually getting out of coal? Are we actually transitioning? You know, is the Schwarzenewel more important than burning the earth? Like in the case of Germany, no, it wasn't. Like they, they'd they rather have balanced books than actually do something to protect the, the earth. You know, we said all this bad stuff. This is all out in the open. We're not like... Going to secret archival files here. This is this is all stuff you can access quite easily. Why is the narrative about Merkel that we outlined at the start with all those quotes and the polling numbers? Like, why is that so misaligned with the reality that we laid out later? You know, maybe there's a chance that some people are catching on. Um, You know, Wolfgang Munshaw writes like an op-ed piece, you know, she says, why did she refuse to lay solid foundations for the euro area? Why did she do business with Putin and make her country dependent on Russia's natural resources? Why did she agree to climate change targets and then fail to implement them? All questions that we've asked from a fairly mainstream commentator. Okay, good start. You know, hopefully there's more of that to come. I'm not super hopeful. And so, you know, we've been super hard on Miracle, obviously, in terms of her policies. A lot of the praise of her is as a person. And one, I don't really care what type of person you are as a politician. If you're really effective at doing evil, I don't care how good your like work ethic is. Like that's that's But not she lives in
0: such a she lives in such a small apartment. It's so reasonable that Like yeah, she dresses unpretentiously, and and she
1: only sleeps four hours a night. And she does her own
0: shopping. She like they always love taking pictures of her in the supermarket. Like, look, she's one of us. It's like, yeah, she's a person.
1: Yeah, that doesn't undo
0: the evil she's done.
1: (laughs) I I do not care. Um, You know, okay, you know, she she is most certainly an effective negotiator. Like, she does very well for German capital um, negotiating for them. German interest as a whole, at least the the, the wealthy in Germany, definitely not the poor. You know, by, by all accounts, even her rivals say she's a very formidable, very effective person who's stayed in power for a long time and defeated a lot of rivals. Good for her. That's all pretty useless to me if you're not using your talents to make ordinary people's lives better. But is she actually a very skilled politician or has she benefited a lot from the collapse of other parties? I think a lot of it is the latter. I mean, like we said, and even in 2005, she goes up 20 points ahead of the SPD, and it gets close enough to the point that Schroeder could declare victory on election night. Like that's, it was almost a a Bush-Gore scenario here. It didn't drag out as long, but like, you know, why did she fall so far there? And every election after that, she lost votes. She kind of held the CDU together in the short run, placating its right wings its cultural right wings and but now it's falling apart and her successor is amin Lashit. i mean is is that a good legacy even on its own terms like if you're a, if you're like in the yunga union or whatever like can you really like merkel that much for for leaving her successor as like such a such a bumbling fool and to you know get back to these real material conditions what, what actually matters is not how likeable a politician is, what kind of apartment they live in, or if they take funny pictures holding a big bierstein. It's what you do for the people you represent. Germany now is in disrepair. Infrastructure is trash. Much of Europe has been completely impoverished, but the rich are doing better than ever. As a whole, I think it's fair to say that politics have been very depoliticized in Germany. That's not just Merkel's doing. A lot of that is the rightward shift of the SPD as well, and this Groco mindset, as I called it, of the two parties moving close together on economics. And there's this feeling that the only space for political change is coming from the right. It doesn't seem like there's much ground to criticize her from the left and really get a different alternative. And some of that is her talent for diffusing opposition. So, I guess you got to give her credit there again using using her skills to make the world worse. But overall, the dominant theme of her tenure has to be squandered opportunities during moments where there could have been real change, you know, these big crises like the financial crisis and the euro crisis that could have put the euro on a more stable footing, actually allowing Um, better fiscal capacity, more investment, helping out the poor countries and helping them rise more to Germany's level rather than kicking them farther down and increasing inequality both within and between countries. And so she's just clinging to the support of this kind of ever smaller privileged class in Germany at the expense of everyone else. And at a time, at several times when there could have been a real opportunity for a more progressive action when there was a real political opening for that in the wake of the financial crisis. And she didn't take that, baked in the unequal status quo and made it worse. That takes us to our conclusion. So, you know, this this tenure is ending like a lot of, it's it's sort of hard to imagine Germany without Merkel after 16 years, right? Um, to the point that, that Olaf Scholz recently uh, you know, called himself the Kahn Kanzlerin, using the, the female term because it's so assumed now in Germany that the that the gender of chancellor is is female, whatever. I mean, that's a, it's, that's his joke. I don't find it very funny. But it, it speaks to a broader point that it's so ingrained that, like, that she is the chancellor. So, like, what can we expect after this? It's very hard to imagine. Varoufakis, Jonas Varoufakis, the Greek finance minister under Syriza during the euro crisis who negotiated with her a lot essentially was, was roundly defeated and, and resigned um, after Syriza capitulated he often says that whoever comes after America will be worse than she was as much as the two disagreed um, I think that's uh, that's pretty true when you see Amin Lashit, both in terms of his actual political views and just his skills as a politician he's fairly inept But like we said, you know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. What we definitely know about her is she prevented change during a time of crisis and her handling of the refugee crisis and the narrative, especially that have emerged after that, which is basically refugees equal the rise of the radical right, has had disastrous humanitarian implications for today. Um, No progress on climate, let Germany atrophy and made Europe suffer. So I don't I don't think there's very many charitable takes about this michelle did we have a reading we wanted to do
0: we do ted we have some words by merkel herself appearing in the washington post on february 20th 2003
1: straight to the source okay we haven't had a real a real politician give it we've only had sort of sort of commentators right so this is this is a good one
0: yeah we don't want to shy away we really want to hear it from Angie herself in this op-ed called Schroeder Doesn't Speak for All Germans. All right, let's dive in.
1: So this is obviously, I think people will recognize the time, February 2003, run up to the Iraq war. Uh, Washington under Bush is, is uh, banging the drums of war in Iraq and European countries are sort of lining up on which side of that they want to be on. And so Schroeder had said he doesn't support that. And here's Merkel chiming in, then leader of the opposition.
0: Let's dive in. Rarely do we have the experience of witnessing firsthand the end of one epoch and the beginning of another, but this is exactly what people all over the world are now living through. This epochal change began with the fall of the Berlin wall on November 9th, 1989, which marked a victory for freedom and the opening of the transatlantic partnership to the East. It continues with the events of September 11th, 2001, which shook the United States to its very foundations with consequences that to this day, many Europeans have not fully grasped. Because of these decisive events, Europe and the United States must now redefine the nucleus of their domestic, foreign, and security policy principles.
1: So this is back to that rhetoric stuff, right? Of just sort of like this boring, like redefine the nucleus of their domestic, foreign and security policy principles. Like, what does that mean? Like, that's a very wordy way of saying global war on terror, effectively.
0: Continuing here, Europe is, on the one hand, assuming new responsibilities around the world, whether in Kosovo or Afghanistan.
1: Responsibilities the equal hand, doing war, yeah.
0: <laughs> thanks for translating <laughs> um on the other hand it is divided maybe even deeply split thus for example aid to turkey our partner in the alliance is blocked for days in the nato council by france belgium and germany a situation that undermines the very basis of nato's legitimacy
1: i hate it when the that Im- happens
0: <laughs> the most important lesson of german politics Never again should Germany go it alone, is swept aside with seeming ease by a German federal government that has done precisely this for the sake of electoral tactics. The Eastern European candidate countries for membership in the European Union are attacked by the French government simply because they have declared their commitment to the transatlantic partnership between Europe and the United States.
1: Uh, again, this is like, this is classic, classic, typical stuff germany should never go it alone meaning germany should join these other countries in an aggressive war against iraq in the name of multilateralism and rejecting aggressive war like wild stuff and totally obfuscating it and making it sound super wholesome we're all together holding hands except they're holding hands to go conduct a murderous war and again she won't say it. She won't say we should invade Iraq, but it's obvious what she means here.
0: But there is a more positive side as well. An agreement was reached at the emergency EU summit on Monday. On the basis of UN resolution 1441, participants decided on a coordinated attitude to be adopted by the Europeans in the Iraq conflict. The agreement, which was long overdue, has forced the German federal government to make its first change, of course, in its policy towards Iraq. As the German parliamentary opposition, we welcome this change and expect the German government's behavior on the UN Security Council to be in accord with the EU decision, although we have reason to doubt it will be.
1: Yeah, deferring to the UN here, again, to to beat the war drums, the UN famously where Colin Powell just went up there and totally lied about the weapons of mass destruction Being in iraq and so that that obviously has a ton of legitimacy to conduct foreign policy
0: two things have been highlighted once again by the eu decision first the danger from iraq is not fictitious but real second working not against but jointly with the united states europe must take more responsibility for maintaining international pressure on saddam hussein as is argued in the eu summit declaration this means advocating military force as the last resort in implementing UN resolutions.
1: Well, we're getting close to war. She can't say it because she knows that would sink her, but she the wants the up to. It's
0: killing me. Yeah, like. I know
1: the tension.
0: <laughs> it is true that war must never become a normal way of resolving political disputes. But the history of Germany and Europe in the 20th century, in particular, certainly teaches us this. That while military force cannot be the normal continuation of politics by other means, it must never be ruled out, or even merely questioned, as has been done by the German federal government, as the ultimate means of dealing with dictators. Anyone who rejects military action as a last resort weakens the pressure that needs to be maintained on dictators and consequently makes a war not less but more likely.
1: Uh, here we go. So we got we got Goethe earlier in her political arguments, and now we get a little a little uh, Clausewitz illusion. What what an intellect, Angie! Nice job. Again, this is this is crazy stuff. Like saying, "Oh, we don't want it to be normal." However, we can't rule it out. And actually, if we don't do a war, we might be making war more likely. This is pretty unbelievable to me. This is like Angela Merkel, supposedly this great stateswoman. This great lover of peace and multilateralism, saying that we can never rule out war or even question it. Pressure needs to maintained, meaning this threat of force, and that actually the more peaceful approach is doing war. Like this using this fake factual way to totally shroud her her goal here, which, I don't know if she actually cares about starting a war with Iraq or she wants to win an election and criticize Trudeau, But the fact that you could even voice your support for a war that kills like a million people, they didn't know this at the time, but you're still supporting a war, an illegal war, in order to win an election. Like brazenly cynical, very right-wing, very wild stuff to say, but hiding it in this obvious obfuscatory language
0: this is a grave matter peace is a supreme good for the sake of which every effort has to be made but it is also true that responsible political leadership must on no account trade the genuine peace of the future for the deceptive peace of the present what sorry okay continuing The determination and unity of the free nation's will in the Iraq conflict have a decisive effect not only on the outcome of the crisis, but on the way in which we shape the future of Europe and its relationship with the United States. They will have a decisive effect, too, on how we guarantee peace, freedom, and security, and how we find appropriate answers to the new threats of our time. Will it be alone or together? with determination or in despair, with our partners or against them.
1: Yeah. Continuing this strategy of saying, I mean, I I hate to, I hate to use this term, but like Orwellian shit of being like, no, actually like war, she's literally saying war is peace. And that by starting a unilateral war along with the United States, um, an un, I should say, an unprompted, uh, aggressive, preemptive war, that that's actually the true international cooperation. Like just reversing everything here to support this war, excluding of course the fact that like many countries were opposed to it, you could equally say it's international partnership to side with France in opposing the war, but oh no, it's actually everyone being happy and this great multilateral holding hands by doing this invasion of a country.
0: I am convinced that Europe and the United States will have to opt for a common security alliance in the future, just as they did in the past. The United States is the only remaining superpower, but even so, it will have to rely on dependable partners over the long term. Germany needs its friendship with France, but the benefits of that friendship can be realized only in close association with our old and new European partners and within the transatlantic alliance with the United States. A couple of days ago, an article in the Süddeutsche Zeitung, one of Germany's major national newspapers carried the headline, quote, the end of a friendship. It included the following passage, quote, for Germany, a permanent break with America would probably be not much of a liberation, but a return to an ugly old new reality. To the completely disillusioned world of the old europe with its narrow-mindedness and disloyalty gratitude friendship with america in future these could still prove to be reasonable feelings end quote
1: yeah i mean like what so so the idea here is that actually the peaceful really nice thing to do is to support a permanent american military occupation presence in Europe and in this hostile military alliance that is about 15 years beyond its sell-by date with the USSR having collapsed. And so no, actually, we need to maintain this aggressive military alliance and you know even expand it. And no, that's actually the real peaceful thing to do. Again, as I keep saying, just totally switching things around.
0: It's quite bizarre to use like the term friendship with America and then go on.
1: Right. It's friendship with America to be enemies with other countries. Like that's not peace loving.
0: (sighs) Wow. This is really tough. We're heading for the last paragraph here. For the party that I lead, our close partnership and friendship with the United States is just as much a fundamental element of Germany's national purpose as European integration. But both will be successful only if it is possible to build new trust and we are able to formulate our own interests. There is no acceptable alternative to this way forward at the beginning of this new epoch.
1: Nice. So now we get there is no alternative, but instead of for economics, as she has said multiple times throughout the euro crisis, we get this a little earlier, and that's with starting a disastrous war. There was definitely no alternative to the Iraq War. Um, that's that, that rings very true. Thank you, Angie. Wow. Yeah, that's that one hits really hard. Like, I I think some people know about that, but like that alone should just completely discredit her. Like that that's a crazy thing to say way back eighteen years ago.
0: And I mean, it's equally jaw dropping that this is just not discussed, right? Like, this has been completely erased from people's minds in the discussion of her legacy. Like, I get there's so much to talk about, but this.
1: Yeah, there's so much else. She's been there for so long, but but this is this is wild stuff, and I think that pretty much wraps it up. You know, and like we said, I really hope people are quite skeptical of her, especially as we're going to see a bunch of puff pieces about her as we get to the end of her time as chancellor. You know, this is this is not a moderate person. This is someone that fiercely defends the interests of German capital, the upward redistribution of wealth. We can debate how ideological she is and how much that plays into it, but she's certainly willing to deploy um, rhetorical forms of ideology to suit her needs at various points in time. And yeah, seems seems quite dedicated to right-wing objectives, as we've seen, even if she hides it behind short-term distractions. Michelle, do you have anything else to add?
0: I was just going to ask you to tease the next episode. What do we have Uh, coming up next week?
1: We talked about austerity and budget discipline under Merkel and how that affects their inability to do anything substantive on climate. And I know I just briefly went over some of the economics today. Uh, We really want to get into that more, which brings us to our next episode, um, all about the Schuldenbremse and Schwarzenewel, the baked in austerity that's part of the German system now, how that arose and what we can do about it. And we're bringing in a special guest who is a researcher on some of this stuff and has come up with actually proposals for what we can do to try to strengthen investment in Germany. Um, maybe get a little more social spending, maybe make the country a little less broken and grim. So we will bring that to you next week. And I think that should be a lot of fun.
0: Great. I'm excited to learn some more about economics.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it should be good. All right. Thanks so much for joining. See you next time. Cheers. Ciao, ciao. Spaßbremse is hosted by Ted and Michelle, and produced by Isaac Wurman, this week with special help from Tom Wills. Check out the show notes for things referenced in this episode, including Victor's memoir and his Berlin Bulletin on theleftberlin.com. You can listen to more episodes of Spaßbremse on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, most other podcast platforms, or wherever you are listening right now. Subscribe to be notified each week when our new episode drops. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, feel free to give us a rating, leave a review, or share with other people who you think could use a little Spaßbremse in their life. You can also find updates about Spaßbremse on Twitter, at Spaßbremse, that's S-P-A-S-S-B-R-E-M-S-E underscore pod. Thanks for listening.